Baftas chairman paid tribute to the Queen, describing her as the most memorable Bond girl yet. BBC News. On Saturday the 23rd of November 1963, television viewers in Britain settled down to watch a new programme, something all the family could enjoy. 50 years since the first series of Doctor Who, the reunion brings together cast and crew. This was the 60s when everything was happening. There was adventure, there was tension and there was comedy. If something went wrong, you couldn't do it again. Sue McGregor presents The Reunion on BBC Radio 4. Well, that was a pretty good scream from you, <laughs> Carol Ann. <laughs> this Sunday morning at 11.15... Now on BBC Radio 4, we start a new series of the award-winning programme John Ronson On. Tonight, the journalist and writer John Ronson investigates the phenomenon of confirmation bias, something he feels he might be experiencing himself. What I've noticed this last kind of year or two is that every time I look at my phone, the time is 11.11. So after about two years of keeping this a secret to myself... I mentioned it to my son and we went on the internet and it turns out that there's a huge number of people who are convinced that every time they look at their phone, the time is 11.11. And a whole bunch of them have formed a kind of support group online. Then I noticed that one of the people is Uri Geller and I'm just outside Uri Geller's house near Reading. It started happening to me when I was about 40 years old and it started by me standing with my back to a digital clock and something made me turn around for no reason whatsoever. I turned around to look at the clock and it was 11.11. So I used to ignore it because I thought it was a coincidence. But then it was actually becoming freaky because intensified. I was seeing 11.11 more often in a car, on a computer, on I, the microwave. I had that on the, on the, the sat-nav yeah. on the car, 11.11. Or the mileage. or what, And then they would check me into hotels, the 11th floor, room 111. And I thought to myself, no, there is something going on here. And I decided to write a little article on my website. And I was inundated. Emails came in from Egypt, from Israel, from Greece, from Holland, Norway. You know, I have a list here, which I'm holding in my hand, of just a few presidents like Barack Obama, 11 letters, George W. Bush, 11 letters, Bill Clinton, 11 letters, Jimmy Carter, 11 letters, Anthony Blair, 11 letters, John Kennedy, 11 letters. I mean, I can go on and on and on. Although I have to say, most people yeah. call him Tony Blair. Okay. I'm a rational person also, John. You know, I have common sense. And, you know, Carl Jung coined up the word synchronicity, where he tried to prove to the world that everything that is happening in the universe happens for a reason. There is a reason that we, or the group of people who are around the world, including you, are attracted to this figure. And what's the reason? I don't know. Now, have you heard of this phrase in psychology called confirmation bias? 
which yep. basically means we forget all the times we look at the clock and it says 11:12. Yeah. Well, you know, again, people who want to be skeptical or the skeptics, come on, they will always find some way to debunk this 11:11 thing. I ignore that because I want to believe. I want uh, the mystification to be there. So I dwell within that belief system that the 11:11 is real. I don't want to hear explanations. I don't want the wonder to be destroyed. Well, I can add something to that because my son went on the internet when I told him about mm-hmm. this and he discovered a community of people who were convinced that yes, 11:11 is a sign and it's a sign that a new spirit guide has come to earth. And guess what the spirit guide's name is? Monjo Ronson. My name's John Ronson. Yes. So I thought this is this this is incredible. So I emailed them. One of them phoned my son and said what you need to understand is that every so often a great spirit guide comes to earth. There was Jesus, there was Moses. By the way, let me stop you. Jesus 11 letters. Count. You're right. You right. <laughs> <laughs> said there was Jesus, there's Moses, there's Monjo Ronson. Moses Moshe Rabbeinu is 11 letters. Have we counted uh, the number of letters in Monjo Ronson? M O N J O R O N S O. How many? Eleven. No way. Yeah. <laughs> then again, they Did are the ones. You just counted now, or you knew that? No, I just counted now. But then again, they are the ones who came. It is yeah. the eleven, eleven people who came up with the name Monjo Ronson. Yeah. So that's not the biggest. Monjo Ronson sounds so kind of uh, showbizy. Uri Geller. I feel it's extraordinary that my name is so similar to the name Monjo Ronson. It seems unlikely, but could it be possible that I am Monjo Ronson? I contact the owner of the Monjo Ronson web domain, Ron Besser. The name Monjoronson or Monjo Ronson, however you wish to pronounce it, was established and announced to us in about 2004. And that your name happens to be almost a perfect anagram of that name is just sheer coincidence. Well, before you say that, can we not just unpack this for a moment? How do you know I'm not Monjo Ronson? Well, if you were deity, you would have what they call an identity signature. And you don't carry the Monjoronson identity signature. What is it? When a divine being wishes to be known, they will signal with their personal identification. Just as you always know your son, when he comes into the room, you will always know the particular deity that wishes to make contact through the personality signature they provide. Your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares, your own personal Jesus. Okay, so you know I'm not Mondra Ronson because you just know I'm not Mondra Ronson. Well, I, you don't carry the signature, John. But how? You can't. 
you carry a lot of other things, but you don't carry that particular signature. But the only contact we had before now was I emailed you to say that every time I look at my clock, it says 11.11. Do you think I may be Mondra Ronson? And you emailed me back to say, well, can you read minds at 100 yards? I didn't think so. Yeah, evidently not Mondra Ronson. But my point to you, Rod, is that it's possible that, you know, I just hardly gave anything of myself away in that email. How did you know that I didn't know the code? Maybe I just haven't revealed it to you yet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, please do. I'd be glad to chat with you, Isman Jorensen. So you're telling me that if I that I would just know the signature, it's not possible that I would be a deity without knowing it. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. I still think you were dismissing me as a possibility a little bit too easily. <laughs> well, I would be delayed. Now, what I can do, John, is have Manjorensen contact you. Oh, that'd would, you be good. Be, would, would you be open to that? Yeah, absolutely. How would he contact me? Telepathically. I mean, how will I know? Oh, you will know. Ron Besser. I could string it out, but I won't. Mondro Ronson does not telepathically contact me. I'm sure the reason why my clock always seems to say 11-11 is because of this thing psychologists call confirmation bias. It's the way we tend to look for and find evidence that confirms our pre-existing beliefs and how we ignore evidence that disproves our beliefs. I don't think there's any bias out there so powerful. It's a rainy afternoon at University College Oxford. I'm standing in a wisteria-covered ancient courtyard. This is like the kind of... Uh, I would say epicentre of rationality, but isn't there no such thing as an epicentre because the centre itself is the epicentre? I bring this up because this is the kind of place where definitions matter. And I'm here to meet a fellow of the university called Anna who researches autism. I can't remember how it arose at all, but I think maybe when I was about 12, something like that, I bought two lip balms. And uh, on the outside, they look exactly the same. They're just two small black pots. You can't tell them apart. But on the inside, one is bright pink, raspberry flavour, something like that, uh, and one's purple. And I have no idea why, but I remember at some point starting this process where I would roll the lip balms around while asking a question about the future and then pick one out and say purple is yes or purple is no and then I'd open the pot of lip balm and it would tell me the answer. And what it would tell you things that could then be proved? Well eventually yes it would be like looking into the future so I might say am I going to get together with person x and it would say 90% of the time it would say no and as hard as I tried to throw myself at these guys the lip balms were always right unfortunately. Are you telling me that even now, as an Oxford Fellow, you still (laughs) honestly stand by this? Well, actually, when I went on my gap year and then university, I left the lip balms at home. Um, They stayed there until this year, when I found them again. And they're still always right. Now, you say they're never wrong. Yeah. But, presumably, sometimes they're wrong. No. You, I mean, in, sure, but you, obviously, you know, as an academic... No, no, no. As an academic, you, you know the phrase confirmation bias. Yes, um, and that's a very powerful thing. 
if I was sitting where you are, I would be saying the same thing. But the fact is, they have never been wrong. Really? And, I, and they never contradict themselves. So if you ask a question in a different way, they never change their story. Anna says she sought permission from her superiors at Oxford before agreeing to this interview. They asked her what she was going to talk about, so she told them. And they looked pretty horrified, actually, and said, you're not going to give your name, are you? And did any of them say, you know, why do you believe this patently ridiculous thing? They didn't go quite that far. Have you got them here? I have. Can I, can I see them? Yes. Well, why don't you try asking a question about something you're doing? Okay. And see if they tell you the truth. Will I make it back to London by six o'clock? Purple means yes. Pink, no. no. You are not going to make it back by six. We are now approaching London Paddington. Well, the train is pulling into London Paddington right now and the time is 20 to 6. Now I've started thinking about confirmation bias. I've begun seeing it everywhere. One place it seems to have cropped up is inside the mind of a man in an intensive care unit, gripped by psychosis. Is the Times writer, David Aronovich. So what was your last memory of going in for the laparoscopy? I think my last memory, as is usual, is the anaesthetist telling you that your hand is going to tingle, and then your hand tingles, and then all of a sudden, nothing. Whenever I have an operation, my last memory, I always, I always try and make the surgeons and the anaesthetists amused. I try and say something funny. Which is just kind of ridiculous. What, to get them to treat you better? To remember you? <laughs> I just want to sort of charm them. I just think here's an opportunity to charm professionals. Yeah. It was a routine laparoscopy, just a tiny operation, and David happily counted backwards from 100 and fell asleep after a few seconds. But then he woke up five days later in intensive care. Everything went terribly wrong, and then everything went terribly wrong on top of the things that went terribly wrong. Pretty nearly pegged it at one stage, apparently. David had vomited into his oxygen mask and inhaled the vomit and caught pneumonia, and the whole thing had somehow turned him psychotic, which apparently happens a lot in intensive care units, although not many people know about it. It's called intensive care unit psychosis. I did not understand the first thing really about what had happened to me or in fact hardly even where I was. There was a patient in the bed opposite me who in my earliest memory I now realise was a black chap probably from Nigeria or something like that who was visited by a number of women but at some point after about 12 hours he metamorphosed into an extraordinary desert shake 
uh, a desert sheikh, not only a sort of man of incredible sort of power, with a whole harem of women around him, but with immense wealth, who had come to this particular hospital because it was funded in enormous amounts by the Saudi Arabians. And as if to confirm this, some lettering appeared from nowhere above one of the walls saying this is funded by Prince Al-Khalif al etc., etc. And he became, in my mind, they called him the Lion of the Sahara, this man. And he had all these privileges that the rest of us didn't have. He had sort of extraordinary furnishings in his room, like an Arabian tent in the desert, but one belonging to a prince. And when a couple of days later, he and I, in my imagination, were both dying, because dying was something I was constantly doing during this period, or being about to die, it irked me somewhat that all the nurses went and sat and watched him dying, whereas very few were were content to come, because I could see down the, the corridor where I thought all this was happening. For one whole night, an absolutely terrifying night, I became increasingly convinced that there were people, two people, in a sort of curtained-off area to the left of me who were brother and sister, who were a pair of incredibly wealthy South African racists. Um, were you thinking about warning the Lion of the Sahara that there were some racists in the room? Well, no, but at one stage, he looked over at me from way down the corridor and put his thumb up to me just to say he was on my side. And is that real? Of course not. None of it's real. No, none of that happened. Now, one of the things, obviously, you have to ask yourself afterwards is where did all this emerge from? (laughs) What part of your sort of imagination furnishes you with these sets of possibilities and interpretations of what you see going on rather than another set? And did you come to any conclusion about that? I've come to absolutely no conclusion at all. I remember a few years ago, I went to a UFO convention with Robbie Williams and this kind of moment of enormous clarity crossed his mind. And he said something which hadn't really crossed my mind until he said it, which is basically, OK, all these people who think they've been abducted may or may not have been. However, what has suddenly dawned to me is that they really, really believe they have. And you really believed. Yeah. yeah. It happened i saw it i heard it it's true it's as true as this conversation is true and that's how i thought in other words the delusion is absolutely as real to the person who is going through it and this is not like a dream i hadn't thought about this before actually i don't lose the memory of it it doesn't shade off at the edges it is like a memory tell me how did you get out of it how did it end I think they gave me an antipsychotic drug when I was at my most agitated, and it just passed away. I think the way that David's brain summoned up hallucinations to confirm the authenticity of his other hallucinations shows that even in the midst of psychosis, confirmation bias is hard at work. These stories have so far been about times when confirmation bias didn't really matter. Nothing spiralled because of these incidents. The world basically stayed the same. But that's not always the case. Twelve years ago, Lotvi Raisi lived in Phoenix, Arizona. It's a beautiful place. With The weather over there was exceptional. I enjoyed my time over there. To be honest with you, I had the best time of my life over there. I did my training over there to become a, a commercial pilot, an airline pilot, flight instructor and everything. You came back to England after qualifying as a pilot and moved to London, right? 
Yes, I moved back to London because my wife was working with Air France in Heathrow Airport and I was based next to Heathrow. The night before, I spent a time in the gym in the Marriott Hotel that I was a member of there next to Heathrow, spending time in jacuzzi and after we went to a restaurant with my wife the next day. Boom. Lotfi woke up at dawn to find a huge number of people in his house. They were swarming all over the place. So how many people came into your house? The whole neighbourhood was surrounded. It was the police, accompanied by MI5. It was a coordinated operation. Lotfi had his pilot's licence framed on his living room wall. The police officers and the MI5 agents gathered around it. And they said, this is the right pilot, this is our man. So what, they looked at your pilot's yeah, licence yeah. and said, this, this is, is our, our man. man yeah. And did you know what they meant? No, I didn't realise that until I was alleged. They said that you are connected with the 9-11 atrocity. This was ten days after 9-11. Lotfi was the first person ever to be arrested for it. What they had against him was that he was a Muslim Algerian and by a very bad coincidence he'd been training pilots at the same Arizona flight school where one of the hijackers, Hani Hanjur, had trained. So they took Lotvi to Paddington Green Police Station and they told him that he was the brains behind 9-11. He was the man who had trained all 19 hijackers. And were you questioned? Yeah, for seven days. And did anything happen in those seven days where they became even more convinced of your guilt? The picture that I took it with my cousin in the backyard in London. And they said it's a guy who blew up the Flight 77 in the Pentagon. Right. Well, they thought your cousin was the Pentagon pilot. Yeah, the Pentagon pilot. And I said, I mean, it was laughable at one stage. Does he look anything like the pilot, the, no, the guy who... No, kid, who none like, whatsoever. None whatsoever. So did you say to them, he doesn't look see, anything like... even with those allegations that I was the kingpin, I was the brain, I was the flight instructor for the 19 hijacker, I killed 3,000 and I don't know how many people. At one stage I had to say no comment, sir, that's all. That's why I was advised by my solicitor and that's why I did. I was saying no comment because enough it's enough. So, okay, so they had the fact that you were an Arab, a Muslim, you went to a flight school in Arizona, uh, you had a pilot's licence on your wall, and your cousin in the photograph must have looked a tiny bit like the... Uh, I guy. don't think so. No, like nothing at all? Was it a blurry picture? No. It was a clear picture? It was a clear picture. I sat in the police interview and I was shown the photograph by the security services who said that this was my client with Hani Hanjur. This is Lotvi's solicitor, Richard Egan. They then showed me a photograph of Hani Hanjur. There was a passing resemblance, there's no doubt. When I went in to see Lotvi, I was obviously very concerned and he immediately said, that's my cousin. So I knew that it was wrong. Then I took a closer look at the photograph of Hanjur and I could see actually when you examined it with more care, there were clear differences between ear shape and things like that. There was one more bad coincidence. The flight school's logbook was confusing. 
and it looked at first like Lotvi and the Pentagon hijacker had once been in a training plane at the same time. Richard Egan says it would have been easy to work out the mistake. The third person in the plane vouched for Lotvi numerous times. He said they hadn't been in the same plane. But the investigators were so gripped by confirmation bias that they were filtering out all the evidence that proved Lotvi's innocence. Lotvi was sent to Belmarsh Prison for four months, where he was stabbed by a fellow inmate. I was very lucky because I had a warm jacket on me and everything. And um, that moment, it became like shock for me. And that night I almost had a heart attack in my cell. It was very hard and harsh. I understand the situation, there were a lot of pressure on them, but I was paying a heavy price for that. Do you think that the authorities wanted so badly to believe that they'd got the kingpin, I, that they began to believe it themselves? I believe it then and I believe it now. Maybe once you're so convinced that you're right, it's just really, really hard to admit that you're wrong. Lotfi has now been completely exonerated by the UK government. But he's still fighting for the US government to admit that he's innocent. What happened to Lotfi happens a lot. Whenever American statisticians have tried to calculate how many innocent people are at any one time locked up in American jails, they come up with anywhere between 1% and 5%. 1% would mean 20,000 innocent prisoners. How many of them are there because of this thing called confirmation bias? I was at school and we were studying history and I came across a picture of Joan of Arc being burned at the stake by the British. And she looked very like my sister Mary and suddenly occurred to me this was an awful thing. What on earth are we doing to this poor woman? And that was actually the genesis of my whole sort of obsession with the death penalty. This is the death row lawyer Clive Stafford-Smith. He spent his life inside American prisons and he thinks he's got the answer as to why confirmation bias has such a grip on the criminal justice system. The various things that are systemic in the legal system that actually lead us, not to make mistakes, you know, not to err as human, which is obvious, but rather that are structurally there to ensure that we're inevitably going to make mistakes. And one of those elements is the personality that we pick for particular jobs. Clive says he's got a test he likes to do on people to illustrate his point. Now he does the test on my producer Lucy and me. Would you today, and you've got to be honest about this, this isn't hypothetical, would you chuck in your job that you're doing now and become a police officer? Would you like to do that or not? I wouldn't. No. And why not? Because I, I, I think it would be dangerous. So what are danger. the other reasons? I think I don't wear a uniform. Is the idea that you would have the power to send people to prison for a long stretch something that appeals to you? Or no. Not? No. It would make me feel nervous that maybe I uh, will have got it wrong. Uh-huh. What about the, the sense of power that you could send people to prison? I, I feel no excitement at that possibility. Well, uh, there are other things. The social status. If you were going to those nice liberal London parties you go to, would you want to put your hand out and say, I'm a police officer? No. No. The fact that you're intimidated that you might make mistakes yeah, is... I am. Well, you'd be quite a good police officer. 
Um, Why? Well, they're very interesting psychological studies, and I've seen an awful lot of them because I've sued American police quite a lot for various crimes and misdemeanors. The bottom line of all of this is that when you sue the police, you see that the people we hire, and perhaps the people who apply, are quintessentially what are referred to, this is not my words, as the authoritarian personality, who believe in the system, believe they don't make mistakes, and so forth. And I had these two lovely guys, British police officers, come to my house one time when I asked them the question, which was, in your 54 years as police officers, how many times do you think that maybe, maybe, possibly, you've arrested the wrong guy? They said, oh, never. And not a moment's hesitation. And no matter how much I pressed them, they said no. And they meant it. And they absolutely meant it. And that's a personality type. We all agree we need police. The question is, who is best suited to do that job? Clive is saying that people who are more likely to suffer from confirmation bias are more likely to be recruited to police forces. These are the overly certain, unquestioning people, too trustful of the system. He says the psychological tests root out the uncertain people who question too much. It's amazing to think that the very same biased thought process that led me to see 11-11 everywhere could lead to the conviction of thousands of innocent people. But there it is. Confirmation bias is everywhere. Everywhere. And don't miss the... There's another episode of John Ronson on 11.11 uh, next week at the same time. John Ronson was presented by John Ronson. The producer was Lucy Greenwell. Now on BBC Radio 4, Richard and Siobhan begin their honeymoon.